Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game. We are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. We have got a power packed show with some power packed women. Women making a difference in the game. Women with a message and a message worth listening to. With that as the setup, we will open our show with Nicole Hercules. If you meet Nicole, if you talk to Nicole, you can feel the passion for the sport in her heart, and you can also feel the passion for people of color stepping up in this great game that we all love Nicole Hercules is the new advocacy chair for black coaches for the United Soccer Coaches, and she's ready to go to work. You'll like her message. After her, Lori Lindsay. She was a superstar for the University of Virginia. She played in a World Cup. I think she played in Olympics. She has over 30 caps. She played in all three pro leagues, which makes her a pretty good fit to be a rising star in the media business as a soccer analyst on multiple outlets, Lori Lindsay, a name I'm sure you all know. Good to get her take on multiple topics, including what it's like to work in television, making that transition, and also her thoughts on the NWSL, and perhaps even some comments about the notion of equal pay for the women with U.S. soccer. She was ready for all questions. Finally, if you remember, I introduced you a couple of weeks ago to Megan O'Keefe, a young woman who was a center back for American, who has worked in television and social media, and who we will feature as a guest host with me periodically throughout the year on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Megan O'Keefe was lucky enough to run into Dr. Christina Fink, a two-time Olympian high jumper for Mexico, who is now an internationally renowned sports psychologist, who has worked with some big-time soccer teams, among other sports. Dr. Christina Fink will wrap it up with Megan O'Keefe. Did I tell you? Power Pack with Power Pack Women? I wasn't kidding. Let me get it started after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. As promised, we're kicking off the show with Nicole Hercules. First of all, she's got a great name. Now she's got an important title, and she is the <laughs> chair of, yeah, United Soccer Coaches Advocacy for Black Coaches. And I love that men or women, people of color, getting it done, making a difference. And Nicole is also the president of the Rochester City Soccer League, done a ton of stuff in that area, and we're going to learn all about her and some of her mission points in this new role. Nicole, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> I have to do that, Nicole. Is that all right? I love it. I love every second of it. <laughs> all right, awesome. Well, listen, congratulations on this role, and talk about, uh, in broad terms, what it means to you 
to have this role as the chair for Black Soccer Coaches with United Soccer Coaches? Well, it's so important because I think United Soccer Coaches is one of the groups that truly believes in diversity. So we have a really unique opportunity to really see some advancement for blacks in the sport of soccer. Not only just blacks in the sport of soccer, but we have an advocacy council that's really focused on advocating for everyone in this game. I'm just honored to be able to represent the black soccer community, um, and I'm excited to be able to push some things forward and have a big organization that's supporting a lot of our initiatives and mission moving forward. Talk about the tipping point, as I often say in the podcast, or the genesis of you stepping up and taking on this role. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm very fortunate where I'm kind of surrounded by brilliant people and amazing people who inspire me. So I'm very close with all of the former chairs of the group, from Lincoln Phillips to Mike Curry to Kendall Reyes to Sam Apodu. Um, I have a good relationship with a lot of those guys. So and you'll notice it's a lot of men. I'm the first female chair, so I'm excited about that. But... um yeah, I've been surrounded by some of those guys, so I know a lot of the initiatives that they've had moving forward from the start. And for those who don't know, the Black Soccer Coaches Group with Lincoln Phillips was the first group to start an advocacy group within United Soccer Coaches. Um, so it was kind of the start of the Advocacy Council. So I'm really excited for the history of our group, where we started, and where we're going to go, because we understand that through the United Soccer Coaches, there's a real, true pathway to leadership. Um, and we have an organization that's supporting us to see the advancements of black in the sport, and they provide an opportunity in so many different ways. Um, we had a, a strategic planning uh, process that we did last year, and, you know, Lynn, sat, Lynn Berlin-Manuel, the CEO of our organization, sat in that meeting for two hours. You know, Lee Jarrell sat in that meeting for two hours. We had board members, um, Ashley, um, I'm forgetting her last name, but, you know, Ashley sat in that meeting. We have um, Rusty Ogilvy, who was in our open meeting this year. So there's a true c- a commitment to some of our advocacy council groups, especially our black soccer group, and the support is amazing, and we're just looking forward to moving things forward in a direction where we're going to be really be proud for years to come. Yeah, Ashley Fontes-Comer, who Thank I love you. her story as well. Because, yeah, she's related to Wayne Fontes former coach of the Lions, and I love that you mentioned Lincoln Phillips because when I started with U.S. soccer still in college in 89, one of the first two people that I spent time with was Lincoln Phillips who was helping out with the U.S. programs, and then Desmond Armstrong was the first person I interviewed in my role. So, um, And I thought for me it was great to see right off the bat from my first exposure, you know, Desmond Armstrong and Jimmy Banks and Kobe Jones and Dante Washington. Wow. Yeah, however – However, I do feel like that was 89, so I do feel like there's still more growth that needs to be done in the area of black coaches. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but you've got the platform to say, hey, we can do better, and this is how we're going to do better. Can we do better? Oh, absolutely, and I think you can see it. I mean, we did a um, presentation at the convention. It was called Power Without Inclusion, and Stacey Wilson was the moderator for it, former national team player, and we had an amazing panel. But it really talks about the numbers of black head coaches in this country who are in the front office, different jobs through the NCAA, through professional ranks. Um, and the numbers are not what we'd like to see. You know, they're, they're really not great numbers. Um, so we know the challenges, but we're even more excited about the opportunities of what we can do when we come together because we're stronger. And we have a plan in place that allows us to do many things. Like we have a project implementation team that's working towards making sure that we're able to improve our ability to get things done in a timely and consistent manage, uh, manner. We have an, a way to increase representation, so we're seeing more black soccer coaches in leadership roles. We have an initiative to make sure that that happens, and we have a team that we're building to make sure that we see that in the future. 
Um, we have a team that's that's going to work on increasing value. It's just making sure that people understand the actual and perceived value of our group and its members. We also are looking to increase engagement. We want to make sure that our members are engaged um, and that we have the proper partners to make sure that throughout the year we're we're seeing each other, we're doing work, that the things that we're accomplishing to just remain connected to each other and to be able to highlight and promote some of the amazing work that's happening from within our community. And then we have new technology and community and communication tools that we're using. Um, so this month is exciting for us because it's Black History Month. And the best thing that I learned last year when we first did this is that we have coaches from our community who have touched so many people's lives, and it's not even about being black or it's not a color thing. I mean, there were thousands of people who talked about how their lives were changed by their coaches. And that's the thing that I love about this sport is that it's the world's game and it unites people in a way that I don't think any other sport can. And it's not about being black. It's not about being white. It's really about the impact that you have on the lives of people who just show and display amazing character and want the best for each other. So, I mean, I'm I'm so excited about this month because we have a, a long list of people that we'll be honoring uh, this month. But it's always exciting to see just the spectrum of people whose lives have been touched from coaches in our coaching community. It, it always just really reminds me of the importance of what we're doing is bigger than any of us. Um, and it's really important that we stay focused on that. Focusing on you, who's been your inspiration? Former player at the University of Albany, you've been, been involved with the local pro team there in Rochester. We talked about your role as presidency with the club as well. Along the way, who has inspired and motivated you to, to want to do more in soccer? I'd have to say my family, for one. Um, I'm a person of faith, so I always give glory to God. But I would also just say, within our community, there's been so many people um, Mike Curry's a phenomenal mentor. Kendall Reyes has been a, a phenomenal mentor. Um, Lincoln Phillips, probably at the last convention in Baltimore, he and Daniel Gordon had an open meeting where it really fired a lot of us up to get invo- involved um, and use more of our time to be involved in working towards improving opportunities and resources for our community. So those are some of the names within the association of people who I just really respect and value. Sam Akpoto is another one, a former um, Nigerian national team coach. People who have just great insight. They've been really connected. Of course, my college soccer coach, Kyle Kenny Banda, um, he's, you know, he's the coach of the year multiple times, coached at UMass, um, coached at Albany where I played. Um, so, yeah, I'm fortunate to be surrounded by some amazing people who, you know, want to give back and want to be involved in the game and, and make a difference. So those are the people who kind of inspire me the most. So great to kick off the show with Nicole Hercules, that great name, and you can feel her wisdom coming through. She's the chair for United Soccer Coaches, the advocacy group for black coaches. As she said, the first female in this role, an impressive list of male leaders as the chair, now the first female and a female of color, which we're delighted to have. All right, here's a long walk and and a long question, but stay with me on it, okay? And I mentioned Desmond Armstrong and some of those other guys, but debunk a myth, or maybe that's not the right word, help me make a difference. So, look, there's been a lot of talk. Paul Gardner in Soccer America talks all the time about, hey, we need more Latino players, we need more Latino players. And then when they get to the topic of black players, um, whether it's African-American or Jamaican or whatever, a lot of times they'll talk about the fact that, hey, these Desmond Armstrongs, these Eddie Popes, Kobe Jones, they're actually, they came from pretty good families, you know, so it wasn't like inner city, right, which was mm-hmm. part of the issue of finding the Latino players. Help me understand where we are in this country now on 
elevating the black athletes that are in the inner cities? Are we finding them or are we still not finding them? I don't think U.S. soccer is doing a good enough job about finding them, but we have programs. I personally, I have a, a company where we do, we work with relevant sports and BRC group for, on a program called Champions Rise here where we do exactly that. And the best thing about it is because United Soccer Coaches exist, we know who the best coaches from our community are, and we know where a lot of the best programs are that are developing top-notch players that are coming out of this country. Some are going straight overseas. Um, and some are here, but they're struggling to kind of make their way through that coaches, uh, that not coaches, but the the player development pathway in this in this country. Um, so we have a way that we are going into inner city communities and bringing top notch coaches and resources to be able to identify some of these players and connect them with a network of coaches that can help them get to the next level. Um, so that's something that is being worked on. Um, but it has to be better. We have to do more. There has to be more of an investment in it. Um, you know, my soccer league, we play futsal, which is a 5v5 game that looks very similar to basketball. So I know that in November, when I go into the rec centers and I'm recruiting players, we take the basketball away. We put our, our, our soccer goals in. And for two months, those kids are playing futsal. And I'll tell you what I've learned from doing that is that when kids don't readily have soccer, you know, available to them, they don't really know much about it. So you, these kids who would normally go in there to play basketball and football and baseball, they're forced to kind of watch soccer. Um, and then they learn that it's this fun, high, you know, high pace. You know, there's lots of skill. There's a lot of creativity. And it's very similar to the game that most African-American players love basketball, you know. And then they kind of start falling in love with it. And I normally have more kids who start practicing um, and, and joining our league that starts in July or January. Um, just because we're giving kids the opportunity to see a game in a different light um, and to see people who look like them who are coaching it and caring adults who want to see them do well in life. Um, but we do that through the game of soccer in some of these inner cities. And, man, the talent that's out there, uh, we just have to do a little bit more. We have to do a little bit more. All right. Also, on the female side, I get a front row seat every day as a voice of the North Carolina Courage to see Jess McDonald, Lynn Poole, oh. Crystal Dunn, pretty good players, right? Awesome players of color. Kinkle, yeah, you got a lot. Yeah, they're awesome. On the women's side, though, how do we get more females of color to play at that level and play? And then, more importantly, I'm thinking about last week when I had Myron Vaughn on, African-American coach, leads a big club in Indianapolis, played in Cincinnati. <laughs> he talked about the fact that it was sometimes hard for him because – his coach didn't relate to him as a black yeah. athlete. He felt it was important that as a black athlete to become a coach to inspire more black athletes. So I kind of ran two questions in there with the women, but then also, you know, propping them up to be coaches. And I think in that case, it's both women and men. So do your best with me kind of rambling there, but I think you got my point. Yeah, and I think it's worse with black female coaches. There are none in the National Women's Soccer League. There's not one. Um, so I think there needs to be improvement in that as well. And I think there's a proper pathway that we can see with exactly what you're saying. Representation is very important. And I know growing up, I was often the only, you know, black on a soccer team. And I didn't have a black soccer coach until I was in college. Um, so that was unheard of. And I'll, I'll tell you just a quick story to, to tell you why I'm doing what I do is, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, but I was helping an inner city team, um, and there was a young girl who, after I did a, a, a skill session with these kids, she looked at me and asked me where I was from. And I, in my mind, I didn't understand what she meant by that, but she explained black people in America don't play soccer. 
So I was just very mm-hmm. disturbed by the fact that because she's not seeing people who look like her as coaches or players for that fact, that she didn't believe this game was for her. So what you're saying about the North Carolina courage is so important because that team, it's a diverse team, and those girls are sisters. It's not about a race thing, this or that. <laughs> but people are able to see people who look like them. Crystal Dunn is huge in the black soccer community. You know, you named up Lynn Williams, Jeff McDonald, all these people, and, and, and all the players on the U.S. national team. But it's especially important for children of color to see people who look like them, who are players and who are coaches. Um, so that's why United Soccer Coaches, I'm always going to tie it back to United Soccer Coaches, because I think they do the best job of trying to figure out a pathway for us to get some of our coaches in leadership positions. And, you know, when we were talking about Lynn and some of these people and Lee, who are in our strategic planning uh, meeting, who are recognizing these issues and saying we've got to do something about it, um, we have a really great opportunity to do that, and we're going to start working towards that. So we need definitely just to advance some of the female black coaches who are, you know, in our 30 for 30 program, who are doing the upper 90 program, who are, you know, involved in investing, who are coaching at the coaching level or in the college game, that we're identifying our talent and that we're able to kind of create opportunities based on, the fact that they're phenomenal, competent coaches who can coach at the next level. So really, thank you for pointing out the courage, because I think that's really important that we, we do look at that and the importance and the value of what a diverse team looks like for, for a lot of people. And I, I think there's another per- player who, Carson Pickett, on the Orlando team, and I know Kate Ward is the, is the disabilities chair. She's a, a, a female who has a disability, and there's people who look like her whose lives she's impacting. So it's not even just the black soccer community. There's so many different communities where we need to see people who other people can identify with, and you'll see the landscape of, of soccer change for the better, you know, once we're able to kind of get more people who are different um, in front office positions, in leadership positions, as head coaches, um, more top-notch players who are coming from the inner cities. Because a lot of kids right now don't think that soccer is a sport for them. Um, but not everyone, again, is from the inner cities, but we do want to make sure that we're creating access and opportunities for players who do not think that this game is for them. Boy, not to be sycophantic, but I so adore your passion and am so humbled by the fact that United Soccer Coaches sought you out to take on this role because I know you're going to get things done, and I feel like I could talk to you forever. I do have one final question, though, and you can either paint it in broad strokes or you can paint it in more specific, finely tuned strokes, and that is, and I'm going to pose it as a question, you can fill in the blank. When I'm done serving as the chair for black coaches of United Soccer Coaches, whenever that may be, I hope these one or two or three things get accomplished. What's the answer to that, Nicole? I hope that we're seeing more black coaches in head coach positions. I hope we see more black soccer program owners. I hope there's more capital resources that are invested into black programs. Um, and I hope that we'll just be able to see that United Soccer Coaches has played a big role in forging some of these changes moving forward. And I know that my group will be the people who are doing this work, and that, that's, that's our mission. That's our focus to make sure that many of these things happen. And as another, here's another thing. We also want to make sure that we're plugging in more people to get involved. We had over 150 people who signed up of all colors of all races who want to be involved. Um, so we want to get more people plugged into the work so that we have all hands on deck and that we understand that we're stronger together. You know what I want to say to that, don't you? And I'm going to say it three times. If you want to say it with me, you can. I just want to say, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> Hercules, I love it. Dude, yeah. you're awesome, man. <laughs> when somebody finally steals your heart, don't let them take your name, okay? No, no I'll never what, change it. 
that's it will never I've, unfortunately it's just I won't change my last name it's, it's I love it <laughs> tell you what your personality your power your passion it matches that name and I mean that with all sincerity and with all of my heart I'm really proud of United Soccer Coaches I'm proud of you Nicole thanks for kicking off our show Thanks, and same to you, Dean. I saw you at the Honors Award, and you were outstanding. So all the best, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this podcast. Lori Lindsay's an absolute beast. I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say. <laughs> well, what a great segue. Lori Lindsay is next. Nicole Hercules, you're a rock star. All the best. All right, take care, Dean. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. We're at Podcast Row as part of the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention, the Movers and Shakers, and we're pleased to be joined by former soccer superstar, now a media darling, talking about Lori Lindsay, played at Virginia from 98 to 02, played in some pro leagues, 30-plus caps for the USA, and first off, you do a great job, by the way. Enjoy your work as an analyst. I like the way you break it down, Lori. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that a ton. So let's work our way backwards. Let's talk about this role. You seem to, like I said, enjoying it. What do you like about uh, working in the TV business? Well, it feels very much like playing, right? The build-up and talking to coaches, the preparation before the games, and then it's like when you're in it, it's live. You need to be succinct. You need to articulate what's happening. And, and as a player and still as like a fan now, I always loved talking about the game. I love breaking down tactics, why players are doing this, why they're doing that. And so, I mean, when you get to do it and get paid for it and still stay close to the game, it's amazing. It's not as easy as people think, oh, though, is it, I right? <laughs> I mean, that's like, I mean, that is the million-dollar statement there, right? Because I think the thing is, is everyone thinks they can come in and just just talk about the game. But there's people in your ear. Things are happening live. You're, there's replays. There's a very, very much of a, like a story that's being told. And it's a craft, just like playing. And I don't think people realize that. And I don't think it's always approached that way. Um, but I learned that quickly. And then being able to take my experience of playing at a high level and and carry that to to this craft has has been fun and continue to improve. Well, I wanted to say it's not easy because so I'm an old fat guy. I've been broadcasting games for 25 years, all sports. But I will tell you, the following behind the NWSL as a broadcaster is the most nerving one because those people care so much. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, they are trolling the entire game. Like, you cannot <laughs> step off ever, Lori. <laughs> the fans are just that. Right. Excited fans. And it's amazing. I mean, and I think also that goes back to for so long, we've kind of had to hold women's soccer and protect it in a way to make sure that it continues to grow. And, and I really appreciate that about the fans and wanting to protect the players. But I think the evolution of the game is to be able to critique, critique the clubs, critique the players, that this could be better in, in a professional manner, right? Not just bashing them, because I understand what goes into it to get on the field as well. But to be able to say, hey, this can be better, this can be better, the club ent entirety needs to improve, right? And, and that's the evolution, in my opinion. 
You were such a rock as a player, loved watching you play, and you looked like you could still go out there and get it done and, and do great things. But And I know you've got this great seat, but are you a little jealous that uh, you don't get to be playing? Because it's so amazing right now. I mean, the, the crowds after the World Cup off the charts for NWSL. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels good to have been a part of any of it, to be able to you know, live out my dream, going to World Cup Olympics, playing professionally, being a part of all three of the leagues. And at the same time, sitting back and seeing these players that just got drafted. We just finished the the NWSL draft and, and seeing these players that have only known a league because we're starting our eighth season. So yeah. these players really started middle school, right. even fifth grade, potentially having seen the evolution of this league. And that in itself is super exciting. So uh, it's not it's not jealousy. It's more. Yes, this is where this is where we are. I'm, I'm thrilled about that for the sport and for the players. And also there's a whole nother multiple levels that we can get to. So well said. And how about Sophie's opening comments <laughs> thanking everybody for laying the groundwork. Was she not brilliant up there with yeah. her speech? And I mean, yes. And you love that from a young player. I mean, this that was one of the special things about this draft. There's multiple players that are leaving college early. It's the first time we've seen that, leaving college early to enter the draft. And two of those players, Sophie Smith and Ashley Sanchez, were, were drafted. And so, yes, for her to be that articulate as a sophomore and understand who, who's been before her and who and her family and just the the school of Stanford being behind her I think is speaks to her and who she is as a as a person and will carry her far. All right, we're here at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. I can't steal you for too much longer, but remind me all of your coaches from college on. Who were <laughs> who your coaches? Yeah, April Heinrichs at the beginning um, at UVA. She left to take over the national team. Steve Swanson, who's still at Virginia. Um, great m- mentor, father figure of mine. Um, who else? Then we went into, goodness gracious, I played for San Diego Spirit. Jim Gabar was a longtime coach. Clyde Watson mm-hmm. okay. for Washington Freedom. Paul Riley was a coach. Thought, yeah. Mark Parsons. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Um, quite a quite a few amazing amazing coaches. Um, my buddy Chris Ward, who was a, an assistant at Washington, trained me and Becky Sauerbrunn for so long. The wow. individual training. So yeah, I mean, I've I I mean. I can go on about coach and go on about my family. I mean, massive support. I couldn't ask for a better support system. Yeah, great coaches. And I, I thought you played for Paul Riley because, mm-hmm. now granted, I get a pretty good seat uh, as the longtime voice of the Courage, including the original Courage way back when, when it was Danielle Fotopoulos yeah, and Berger Prince yeah. and Hagarisa. And yeah, that's an amazing group. Right, yep. that was a big-time team. And mm-hmm. now this team, which is so good, but I am getting the sense that you know, if you're not part of the courage, it's kind of like anybody but Carolina right now. Are you starting to feel that a little bit because the North Carolina courage have been so dominant the last couple of years? I feel like they're starting to people are saying, all right, enough of them. Let's get someone else in there. That's exactly what they're saying. <laughs> that we saw Portland make some massive trades to get the first and second pick. The first one happened last week, but then the second one right before the draft started. So you're seeing the aggressive nature of these other teams realizing, okay, whether or not they're looking directly at North Carolina, it's like, okay, we we need to close the gap here. We need to get better players in here. And yes, I mean, North Carolina does have a target on their back. And I mean, credit to Paul Riley and his staff. I mean, they've really set the precedence of what it's like at a training environment, right? And just from the top to bottom. Well, and that's the thing. So Paul Riley, 
who, you know, Vlatko got the job, great coach. But, I mean, really, I think Paul Riley has proven that he's one of the best women's pro soccer coaches in the world. I mean, I think he's shown that. What makes him such a great coach? Well, I think the passion okay. he brings to it. I mean, and the accountability, because the one thing about Paul is he is he cares, he's competitive, but what he demands from his team, he also demands from himself. So I, you talk about being prepared. That guy is prepared when it comes to the training sessions. They're fun. There's, um, there's a purpose behind them. And then when it comes to the game, you are ready to play. You're fired up. It's every game means something. And I, I think you see that bleed through the team. And he is. And he takes players that maybe just need a little tweaking to their game and is able to help them. I mean, Aben Rodriguez, when we played in Philadelphia together, too, I mean, I, I fully believe when I got there, it was just a, a, a freedom that I was able to play with. And, and I was surrounded by great players too and then obviously Paul's coaching suited me so I was able to have a freedom but it was Amy Rodriguez it was kind of like it was a little iffy in terms of what was her next move going to be in terms of the national team and he showed her a few runs gave her a little bit of confidence and she was lights out so difficult to to play against and she's yeah. a dynamic forward right but it was just some tweaking little tweaks. he's elevated tweaks, a yeah. lot of players to I mean that Kristen Hamilton team. fourth round pick right? right yeah I mean just was able to buy her time he kept probing her, helping her, developing her, and then lights out when it needed, right? I mean, yeah. I saw a lot of players be gone for the World Cup, and she stepped up when it was time. Here with the talented Lori Lindsay, just two more questions. They're important questions. You know the deal right now. The U.S. women looking for equal pay. Your stance, what do you think? How is that going to shake out? Hopefully equal pay. I mean, it's not really about equal pay, right? But it's about coming to agreement in terms of, yes, this is what we deserve. We we want to continue to elevate the women's game. This is what needs to happen in terms of in terms of that. We continue to push the push the pace, I should say. I mean, or push the needle on the field and off. And we need support from okay, that too. You mentioned that support. The surge after the World Cup for NWSL was phenomenal. The Courage games were great, but even better was seeing great crowds at Chicago and Sky Blue and some markets that didn't and weren't getting great crowds. How do we keep that going? You got the Olympics going. How do we make sure these players don't leave and go over to the to Europe and that type of thing like Sam just did? Yeah, I don't always think, well, one, visibility. Visibility, having Budweiser come in, um, big markets, having that um, continue to spread the word, letting people know that there's a there's a league, right? That is, that's a main thing. And, and the sponsors really help with that. Well said. And then also expansion draft next year we have another team coming in louisville potentially others mm -hmm. so that provides even more more availability for players and also at the same time i mean sam kerr is amazing and you never want to have a player go overseas but i also think she gets that experience and hopefully comes back right okay. so it's about just and now we have allocation money involved so there's just evolution across the board in terms of getting player other international players over here and again i mean you hope that Sam comes back, gets that experience, and then elevates the NWSL in another way too, right? Well said, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, yes, visibility, endorsements, and TV deal, right? Doesn't and, hurt. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then continue to have places for these players to play and develop, which is expansion in the NWSL. Lori Lindsay, great to be with you. Yeah, You're a great you. player. You're also a great analyst. Good job with the draft today. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you again to the talented Lori Lindsay. 
And switching gears on this week's podcast, Dr. Christina Fink, a highly experienced and valued sports psychologist, was also in Baltimore at the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention as part of two sessions that several folks were able to hear on the Friday of the event. One in the morning was titled Competition and Player Well-Being, Two Issues Coaches Must Be Concerned About, and one in the afternoon titled Supporting Performance Through Psychology. Two great topics, two great sessions. Thankfully, our new rising star of soccer media, Megan O'Keefe, a former center back for American University and now working in the TV and social media business, was able to catch up with Dr. Fink at the convention, and we share Megan's visit with Dr. Fink after this quick message. Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found. Dean Linky back with you for a quick moment as I want to thank our first two guests, Nicole Hercules. And Lori Lindsay, great guests, great people, as you can tell by their interviews. And as you all know, the convention that we just had in Baltimore was filled with great people, including Dr. Christina Fink, a highly experienced sports psychologist with over 20 years of work in teaching, counseling, and sport administration. Her clients include Olympic medalists and world champions, as well as professional and national soccer teams. She was the sports psychologist for several teams in the 2000, 2004, and 2008 Olympic Games with varied sports like synchronized swimming, track and field, modern pentathlon, swimming, diving, archery, taekwondo, and soccer. That makes sense because as Megan O'Keefe will discover during her time with Christina Fink in this on-the-spot interview, Christina competed in two Olympic Games for Mexico. She was in Seoul in 1988 and in Barcelona in 1992. I was there too, Christina. It would have been awesome to meet you over there. And she held the Mexican high jump record with a six foot four jump for 22 years. Dr. Fink has a BS in psychology and a BA in family and consumer resources from the University of Arizona. And she has a master's degree and Ph.D. from UNED in Madrid. Dr. Fink is the author of a number of published papers and books and a keynote speaker in many national and international conferences. She is the director of sports psychology for YSC Union Youth Development and is responsible for helping implement its core values and behavioral learning into its soccer education curriculum. Dr. Fink has also supported the Philadelphia Union, working directly with first-team athletes as directed by Philadelphia Union technical staff, and she is the first non-European to be invited into INFP, the International Network of Football Psychologists, where her peer group includes sports psychologists from top professional European clubs, including Man United, Chelsea, among others. And, as I said earlier in the last segment, our superstar Megan O'Keefe was able to grab her, sit her down, 
and get her thoughts on multiple topics. Enjoy. We are back with the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. And I am here with Christina Fink. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. So like we were just talking about, I was kind of looking through the presenters and I saw you come up under the sports psychology section. So what does bring you here to the convention? So I'm here with really talking about performance psychology um, and how you can integrate that just into anything, right? So I am working with the MLS with their affiliates. They had a two-day conference for their affiliates, and I did part of the sports psychology or performance psychology presentation for them, just talking about different different aspects of what they can integrate to their program. So how can you integrate sports psychology to your everyday, right? Uh, and then and then also how to communicate more effectively, more efficiently, um, things like that. And then. Um, um, this morning had a for the director's coaching diploma from um, United Soccer. Uh, it was about really uh, play player well-being and competition. Okay. So how long have you been in this sports psychology world? How long have you been doing? So uh, I'm gonna date myself here. But uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Who's counting? No one's counting. Right? Nobody's counting. So so I've been I've been doing this for more than for 30 years now. Yeah. So. I've been in the sports. So I was. A, I'm a. I am a two-time Olympian. I competed in the 1988-1992 Olympic Games, and was fascinated by what makes us tick. And so went on to get a master's and a PhD in performance psychology because I really wanted to be able to understand what what happens. Right. I had really a really good experience. One Olympic Games, a really bad one, and the next one. It just kind of felt like okay, there must be more to it than this. And so. Um, started working uh, in 2003 with the women's national team from Mexico in soccer. And then from then, uh, worked with Pumas for a little bit, worked with uh, the, a couple of coaches at the academy with Chivas, and then moved to the U.S. then. Wow. Yeah, so I want to I go back to your, your time in the Olympics. That is so incredible. So how old were you when you kind of started getting into the, the athlete world? So it's funny because... Um, I really grew up in a very sport-oriented family, and uh, people can't see it, but I am six feet tall. Yeah, I wasn't expecting you. When you came up <laughs> yeah. to the table, I was like, oh, hello. Yeah, so, um, but I actually wanted to be a gymnast, and so that wasn't going to work. <laughs> Same uh, thing with I'm me, I'm 5'10". Yeah, yeah so, like, so hmm. gymnastics was not going to work, but that's the sport that I chose, and my parents respected that and let me do gymnastics for a while. Um, and so I didn't actually find a track and field until I was 17. Wow. And so I'm out in this, you know, track with high school, you know, just last year of high school, yeah. like playing around. And uh, this coach comes up to me and says, do you, do you know that you could be a high jumper? I mean, like, like, you, could actually, <laughs> you could actually do this. And I was yeah. high jumping, but not knowing what I was doing. And with a little bit of coaching, ended up breaking a youth Mexican record that had been there for like 22 years or something. Say that so like, casually. Well, it was so funny because uh, of my, there's four of us 
siblings, mm-hmm. and of the four, I was like the least inclined to be like athletic, athletic, really, you know. And so that's one of the things that I like to say to parents: like you never know. I mean, so uh, the fact that my parents respected my choice of, of gymnastics actually. Even though I started track and field later at 17, I actually knew my body pretty well yeah. because of gymnastics. And so I was able to, when they say arch, you know, I, I knew how mm-hmm. to arch my back and I knew how to do certain things, had a certain level of flexibility. I mean, things that I learned from gymnastics that I was able to transfer to track and field, which was awesome. Wow. So, <laughs> sounds like a simple question, but what was it like to be an Olympian? What was it like to be in the Olympics? So it's funny that you ask that because I experienced this myself and then working with athletes. Right. Uh, so I competed in two Olympic Games and I went to three Olympic Games as a performance psychologist. And and it's funny because one of the athletes that I was working with described it perfectly. We were at the Olympics and, and she sat across from me and said, I thought I would be happier. You know, wow. Like after she made it, right? Yeah. So, um, so I actually did a presentation a while back in a conference talking about the emotional roller coaster of the Olympic Games, right? Because you get like the highs of, wow, I can't believe it, I'm here, I made it. And then when things don't go exactly the way you want to, it's like, oh my God, this is heartbreaking. And it's, why did I spend so much time doing this, right? Right. But the reality is I would not change a thing because it just, I mean, I've learned so much of myself and other people. And I've had the opportunity to travel and I've had the opportunity to really dive into what affects performance. My doctoral thesis was on aspects that are, you know, what are the factors that affect performance at the Olympic Games. And I bet it applies to so many different sports in different ways because I, I was a soccer player. So, like, even on the soccer teams, you train for four years and then you have maybe several 90-minute games, which is still a, a rare opportunity. But then with track and field, you train for four years and then you have, like, 10 seconds to do yeah. your one event. Right. What was that like approaching right. something and so, like that? And so, and so, for me, it was... Uh, so, in the high jump, you get more than 10 seconds. Like, that, would good. Like, that would be, better. like, running, right? Like, yeah. Like, uh, 100 meter dash for men, yeah. like under 10 seconds. Uh, but the reality of, yes, this is a time that you have. And so actually being able to really learn and learn about, you know, like peaks and valleys and, 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 and when do you have to taper and when, when do you when do you actually need to rest? Because one of the things that affects performance is actually uh, overtraining mm. was the number one that affected performance in a negative way. So how many times we think, oh, you do one more rep or if you mm. do one or if you're like a really hard worker and sometimes I mean I had my college coach uh, Bob Myers from the University of Arizona one time tell me stop getting in your own way yeah like you know so like, in your own head too way. yeah or, or, or trying to do too much you know like if, if I do just one more rep and if you do one more rep you might break something so yeah. stop you know so this is why we do it and so understanding the whole training and the whole and so understanding that has helped me in understanding athletes you know yeah when you have to push when you have to pull back a little bit what is it that you need to do yeah Yeah. this day and age where do you see the most issues I mean I spoke with a couple psychologists earlier today and we talked about social media and technology and how that's sort of a distraction or kind of takes away from our people's skills but what other challenges do you see athletes facing that are impeding their performance I think that one of the so so 
I just hear, I just heard Bill Bestwick say that we are watching ordinary people do extraordinary things, but then in the end they are ordinary people. Yeah, right? yeah. So we, so whether you are an Olympian or whether you are a, I mean, it, it's just yeah. normal. I mean, like, like yeah, you have to do dishes and you need to <laughs> yeah. wash your clothes, right? I mean, right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so these are some of the things that, that you need to remember. And so for me, it's like whether I'm working with a 12-year-old or whether I'm working with a high-performing, you know, decorated athlete, this is the person that I'm talking to. And that's how I treat them. And I expect them to treat me that way as well. So an athlete at one point that, you know, is like winning World Cups and whatnot, and then all of a sudden uh, sends uh, her agent sends me a, a text saying like, oh, she's not going to be able to meet you at this time today. And I was like, okay. And so the next time we met, I said, if you can't meet me, you text me. Like, I'm not going through mm-hmm. your I mean, like, mm-hmm. we're not doing this, right? right? And, 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 and that actually is like, it's almost like understand that that we have that connection, and, and, and you're very important, but you're not that important. Mm, that yeah. we need to go through, you know, different channels to figure out scheduling. Yeah, yeah. At this point, you know, so so it, it's a little bit about that. One of the things that I see today, yes, social media and. Actually telling somebody not to look at their social media or not to be involved in it is, in some cases, unrealistic. Mm, There are people who are very into it. Uh, But it's a little bit more about how do you manage it, right? right? Because you can't control it. You can't control what people say about you, and you can't control... So how do you manage it? And and if you're getting hurt by it, should you keep reading it or should you step out of it for a little bit? You know, that kind of thing. And And then what do you believe in? What is it that you need? I really appreciate the fact that nowadays people are being way more open about how they feel. Yeah. Um, actually saying, like, yes, I need help. You know, well, where you go from an example from Michael Phelps to NBA mm-hmm. players saying I had a panic attack. or So the fact that, and I've heard people saying, oh, well, yeah, athletes are getting softer. or they're getting, and, and actually, for me, it, it's a lot... I think they're a lot stronger for being able to say, yes, I'm dealing with it, it's, and it's okay. Right. I mean, it's such an important conversation to start having because there was such a stigma around mental health, and I think it's probably awesome for athletes that are on such a big stage to open up about that, and then it trickles down. Absolutely. And then you get and then you get kids who say, oh, okay, you know, Tim Howard talking about Tourette's, and, and now yeah. kids that have Tourette's are like, oh, okay, so I'm not a weirdo. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, the fact that we have have one of the first athletes in the MLS to say, yes, uh, and, and I'm not related, I mean, like, yes, I have depression, or yes, I have, or that we have an athlete coming out and saying, like, yes, I'm gay, and and and, and actually saying, this is okay, you yeah. know, it's okay to be, and I'm in no way saying that it's uh, part of that mental health, but it's part of the things that have a stigma attached mm-hmm. to them, yeah, which is which is just so disappointing to <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, yeah. I think the soccer world has been a really huge, like, at the forefront of the LGBTQ community and equality there. I don't know if you do a lot of work in that space. I, I, 
with athletes? I, I, I do with athletes because I just I just think that when you come when you come down to it, it is about respect. Mm-hmm. So if you can respect who I am, this is who I am, and this is all of who I am. Not just like this soccer player or this superstar or this. Mm-hmm. This is the whole of who I am, yeah. and 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 take it or leave it, basically. Right? Getting past but the labels. Yeah, get past the labels because besides, what do you care? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> who I love or who loves me or, you know. Yeah. I mean, like, as long as you're loved, that's great. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. And soccer is all about the love of the game, yeah, right. spreading the love. Right. I love that. So so do you work mostly with teams or with individuals or both? I work with both teams and individuals uh, um, and, and different levels, you know, whether it's college or uh, academy players and and obviously at the pro level so working with different in different stages and um i enjoy working with teams yeah. i enjoy I, I enjoy the the work that goes around that um having been an individual athlete you know an individual sports athlete uh coming into a team setting is is always intriguing to me mm-hmm. you know because there's so much more that you don't control in a right. team, yeah. team sport mm-hmm. uh from i mean when i was a high jumper my coach didn't decide if I could jump or not. Mm-hmm. If I if I made the Olympics, I was jumping there. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, when I'm working with athletes that are, you know, that are not, you know, that are in a team sport, and the coach is going to decide if you play or not. What is the motivation that you have around that, and the psychology? How strong you need to be to be able to keep training and keep doing the things that you're doing, even if they're not playing you, right? Especially mm-hmm. at the higher levels. Yeah. There's. And then to be able to step up the moment that they do to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what specific cases that you work with in terms of athletes that are are you clearly are so talented, but you see them get just get into their own head and then they mess up on the field or in their game, but you know that they are capable of that. What sort of advice do you give those players? They're like, I know I can do this, but why do I just all of a sudden get in my own head? So, so part of that is uh, even the way that we say it, like language is very important. Mm-hmm. And so you're in your own head. Well, yeah, that's where your brain is. So, yeah. So it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. start Don't with that. Don't forget about that. Right. And so, and then we talk about, I talk a lot about, uh, being aware of what you're feeling and then not fighting it. Mm. So instead of fighting it, like let's say I'm 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 really nervous. Yeah. You know, and, and, and somebody asked me earlier today before one of the presentations, the room was pretty large and there were a lot of people there. And somebody asked me, Do you get nervous? And I said, Yes. Uh, I do. Yeah. And I and I love it. I love the fact that I still get that little bit of it because it keeps me I'm not I'm not where I can't function nervous. Mm. I mean like but but I am excited about yeah. it. Right, and I want to, and so I prepared really well for it, and then I deliver because I prepared well. And then when something goes wrong, like slides are not working, mm-hmm. it's okay because I know that I don't have to have that, right? Right. And so it's a little bit about how you prepare, and we talk a lot about possible stressful situations. Mm-hmm. What do you think and feel? What do you do with that? How how are you going to manage it if if this happens, right? Yeah. And so rather than trying to avoid the feeling or trying to escape the feeling, it's actually acknowledging that the feeling is there and then moving on. Right. And a lot of times when you do get that nervous feeling, it's almost a good sign because it shows how much you care about what you're doing. Absolutely. And so it, and so again, it's about recognizing and having the tools to do things with them, right? 
So you take the deep breath, you do the, you know, how do you focus, how do you refocus, a couple of centering exercises and things like that. Nowadays, everybody's talking about mindfulness. Yes, I mean, yes. This is, and, and years ago it was, you know, uh, are you in the zone? And then where you are, then then it came to where if you if you if you can flow later. Yeah. yeah, are you and in the so, flow? Are you yeah, flowing? Yeah, and so and, and, and for me, it's about you know, it is about being mindful. Yeah, are you in the moment? Can you, if you have a mistake, can you let go of it? Mm -hmm. And with kids, I usually turn to a lot of the. In movies that kids see, right? And so you can use something like just keep swimming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I still tell myself you that. You make the mistake, like then you keep going. Yeah. And then as you keep going, you know, you can analyze later. But right. in the moment, you need to stay in the moment. Because if you focus on that one mistake, you're probably going to make two or three more. Mm -hmm. As an athlete, that's an, so absolutely. key. We, I think we used to have like the, the five-second rule. So if you make a mistake on the field, think, you maybe think about it for five seconds, but then you have to dump it because you have yeah. a game to continue to play. Right. So... I'm sure you, you have a lot of those sorts of situations. But my last question to you is, obviously, want to talk a little bit about your work. What truly brings you the most joy? When when athletes have, like, those aha moments, mm -hmm. of, like, that they really trust themselves. You know, because I always say that confidence is a choice. If you've prepared well, then you can choose to be confident, or you can actually choose not to be. So when you choose to be confident, it's like, yes, those voices are in your head, but you choose not to hear them. You, you choose to hear, you know, you, you, you put the thought that you need in your head, right? And so, and so when they have like those aha or, or click moments, even when they, you know, like an athlete that had a long-term injury and was really struggling and going through uh, through that, and then just having like a like like a moment where it was like it just clicked for me that I needed to let go of certain things and stop seeing my body as the enemy. You're like, and yes, so that I was something. like, yes, you know, it's like uh, athletes that kept talking, you know, that I talk about, you know, the process all the time. Like, you need to focus on the process and what you control. Mm -hmm. And a player that kept saying, like, don't talk to me about process. I hate that, you know. And, you're like, and then, and then two two years later, him sending me a tag saying, like, oh my god, the process was so worth oh, it. And, yeah. and so those are the moments that I that I really enjoy. Um, I, I also really enjoy. I have I have two two kids. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is living in London, speaks wow. eight languages. Okay, is, you know, just wow. Just kind of wanted to go through that, you know. That's amazing. Route. And then I have Pablo Cisniega, who's one of the goalkeepers for LAFC. Wow, okay. Yeah, so. Okay, let's make all the connections there. Wow, I, I need to have you on for another yeah. hour to talk all about all this, but I appreciate you being a guest here. Um, thank you so much, Christina Fink. And thank you so much to Megan O'Keefe for bringing you that interview with Christina Fink. Also want to thank Nicole Hercules, who is the chair for Black Coaches as part of the advocacy for United Soccer Coaches. What a great kickoff she was. And then also Lori Lindsay, great player, great pro, played in all the pro leagues. Pretty great story. Enjoying her time now, breaking it down on television. And can't do a show without Michael Knipper, Sean Chevrel, Lynn Burley-Manuel, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches. For each and every one of them, I'm Dean Linke. See you same time, same channel next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap.